0: Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Good morning. How you doing? Good. I'm thirsty. Okay. So, today is week eight of a sermon series called Hello, My Name is Jesus. This is the big finish. We've been looking at Jesus and how he's portrayed in each of the four gospels. We spent two weeks on each, Matthew, Mark, John, then Luke, because we went out of order for scheduling reasons. Um, So today is week two on the gospel according to Luke. Are you ready for it? Good. I think I am too. We'll see. Just kidding. So at the very end of the gospel according to Luke, after his resurrection from the dead, it says that Jesus appeared to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, it says. He revealed what the scriptures had to say, and he also revealed himself to them. So my goal today is that Jesus opens our minds to understand the scriptures a little better um, so that we can understand who he is in greater measure. Twice in the book of Luke, he says this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm going to say that a few times today. It's a marker for the end of a section of the sermon. And it's also a reminder to have ears to hear, okay? so Let's just pray into that before I get rolling. Sound good? God, would you open our ears to hear what you have to say this morning? Open our minds to understand the scriptures at a deeper level. And as you did for your disciples, reveal yourself to us this morning. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we talked about how Luke compiled eyewitness accounts and testimonies into what he called an orderly account for most excellent Theophilus. That's his introduction to the book. We talked about how the composition of Luke's writing actually had meaning. It brought out a theme. One example was how there were over 20 pairings of man and woman, men and women, that show that there's an equal playing field in the kingdom of God, whether you're male or female. That's just one example. Well, Luke's not the only one using composition to communicate things. Jesus used careful composition to communicate things to us. His parables actually use Jewish literary and oral styles and devices to make points of emphasis. We're going to look at that a little bit today. Sometimes what we read in the Gospel of Luke isn't like him sitting down and writing it, but it's actually like Jewish Christian literature that he compiles and arranges, if that makes sense. See, the early Christian church, Jesus' ministry happens, he dies, he rises from the dead, and they all go to an upper room and they pray, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and the Lord starts spreading the good news about Jesus all over the place. And so they go, man, we got to write this down so we can share it with all these churches popping up. And then they start writing it down. And so there's sort of these collections of what Jesus said and did. And then the gospel authors start putting them together in different ways, as we've seen the last two months, to communicate different points of emphasis to us and to different audiences. So when I say um, Jewish Christian literature, that's what I mean. The collection of the early church's writings and oral traditions about what Jesus said and did. But whether it's a Jewish Christian source, whether it's Luke's own hand, or the very words of Jesus recorded right through it all, it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the word of God, authoritative, inspired, and it's ours from God's own hand. So we can find layers of meaning and how these things are structured. We'll do that a little bit this morning. We'll also reference other parts of Scripture, like the Old Testament, And we'll look at cultural context a little bit so that we can start peeling back some more layers of meaning in the gospel according to Luke. Does that sound nerdy cool to anyone? Okay. And just in case it doesn't, I also want to encourage you with something else. (laughs) The Bible is accessible on every level. If you don't nerd out on this like me, if some of this you're like, well, you know, (laughs) it doesn't float my boat. That's okay because the Bible is accessible on every level. If you just read it for the very first time, it's God's word. It's living and active, and through his Holy Spirit, he can reveal to you his truth in the word. If you read it with other parts of the Bible stored in your mind and in your heart because you've read it before or many, many times, great. More layers of meaning are opened up to you. If you can do it with an eye for literary techniques, or like me, you get a book from really smart guys who help you see those things you can find some more layers of meaning, and that's really cool. If you read it and you study what the cultural context is, like what, when Jesus said this, where was he? What did they think like? How would they have received those words in their day? Because it's different than ours. You can find more layers of meaning. But like I said, layer after layer is all from the Holy Spirit, and he uses it all to teach us what he wants us to know. Another really important thing before we get rolling and geeking out like I love to do, is uh, it's really important to be humble. When we read the Bible, we interpret what we think it means. And it's accessible, but it's also deep and layered. There's a lot going on. You know, Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic. And what was written in the New Testament is in Greek originally. And we read it in English. So there's some language stuff going on between what he said and, and us reading the pages of our Bible today. You know, so it's good to be humble and just recognize that. There's a bunch of different translations. If you don't use a paper Bible, but you pull out an app, you can pick from a a billion different translations, it feels like. And they all say it just a little bit different. And so that's a factor in helping us remember to be humble. You know, and so we can be confident that the Holy Spirit speaks truth to us, but yet humble and open. You know, not too tightly holding on to, I know this is exactly what it means and you know, going off on those tangents. So let's keep that in mind as we dig in today. Are you ready? Yeah. Me too. We're going to start in Luke chapter 4. Last week, I read a part of this. I want to read to you verses 16 through 20, summarize a little bit more of it, and then we'll we'll dig in, okay? This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the gospel according to Luke. He's in his hometown, Nazareth. It says he came to Nazareth, Where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, that's in our Old Testament, it was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, because they didn't have books yet, and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he kind of does his mic drop moment. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it says they marvel at him. Then they say, well, we know you, Jesus. You're Joseph's son, the carpenter. Jesus says something about a proverb. Oh, doubtless you'll quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. Then he starts talking about a widow and a leper from the Old Testament. Then the people form a mob to kill him, and he miraculously escapes unharmed. Okay, (laughs) some of this I get, and some of this... I don't right away, okay? So if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. Me too. We're going to look at some of the meaning, some of the layers of what's going on here, but we could, spend, we could spend a year on this. We could spend a lifetime on it. So when Jesus got up and read from the scroll of Isaiah, did you know he did some on-the-fly editing? He doesn't just open to chapter 61 where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and keep reading. He fits something else in and he stops at a certain point. He stops right before the part that says, in the day of vengeance of our God. He ends with the favor and he leaves out the vengeance line, which is next. What's up with that? And then he doesn't continue. Just a couple verses later, it says, strangers shall shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. But he didn't read that part. What's up with that, Jesus? (laughs) you see the people in nazareth are first century jewish people these are their scriptures they've been reading these for like 400 years since the last of them was written and they've been waiting and hoping for someone called messiah to come he's prophesied about in these scriptures and when he comes they know what's gonna happen don't they well they think they know (laughs) he's gonna come and kick out these romans who are oppressing us And we're going to have the land. We're going to have our own kingdom like the good old days when David was king. It's going to be awesome. That's what Messiah is going to do. And those foreigners, those Romans that we hate, they can tend our sheep. (laughs) They can be our plowmen and They can work for us. And we're going to eat and enjoy the goodness of God. That's their plan for when Messiah comes. So when Jesus claims to be Messiah and talks about the Lord's favor, Without the part about the vengeance for our enemies, people notice. People notice. And then when he continues and talks about ministering to Gentile women and foreign army commanders, the mob forms that's ready to kill him. And they're basically saying, don't tell us the Messiah came for Gentiles. (laughs) It ticked them off, you guys, it offended their nationalism. (laughs) it offends their understanding of scripture and what they think God is going to do in their day and age. It offended them. Jesus offended them. It's like Jesus saying this, hey, like Elijah was sent to a foreign widow, like a foreign commander came to Elisha, I'm the Messiah sent to Gentile women. I'm the Messiah who heals foreign men because I bring mercy for all people. And that is just Too much for the people of Nazareth. They're ready to help him take a long walk off a short cliff, aren't they? Or another way to summarize it, being a little silly, Jesus' two step program for how to tick off first century Jews in Nazareth and almost get thrown off a cliff. Step one, leave out the vengeance. Step two, ministry to Gentiles. I like to goof around, as you know. So, great, great, Bill. We pulled back some of the layers. I know there's more, um, but we pulled back some of the layers of what's going on, why they wanted to throw him off of a cliff. What does that mean for us today in 2023 here in Kalamazoo in the United States? I think it's a striking call for us to look at our own Nazareth tendencies in our lives and maybe ask ourselves a couple of questions. Is self-centeredness closing my eyes to God's greater purposes in the world? Will I embrace mercy for all, even those that I despise? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Those are questions we're sitting with for a minute. More than a minute. Okay, the next place we're going to jump to in Luke is chapter 15. There's a trio of parables in Luke 15. I'm going to read you the first one. I'll talk about the other two and then we'll start peeling back layers here as well, okay? Sound good? Anybody know what's in Luke 15? Shout it out if you know what's in that chapter. It's up Oh, it's not quite up there yet. Any guesses? Take a wild guess. What'd you say? You got it. Lost sheep, lost coin and lost sons. Yes, the prodigal son as we often call it. Good job. Extra credit points from back, the back row there. Okay, let's read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them, and I'm upset about it. <laughs> That's how I think it sounded. <laughs> so he told them this parable. Remember that, though. This is the context of the parables. The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling and complaining about how Jesus hangs out with sinners. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So when you first read across this, if you're like me, maybe what comes to mind is like, hey, God seeks out one lost soul. He'll go find the one lost sheep. And that's a profound truth. I tell you what, I'm thankful that he came and found this lost sheep. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and found me when I was lost. Let's start to pull back some other layers and see what kind of comes to the surface as we do, okay? So what if I show you <laughs> this scripture set up just a little different, like that? I know it's hard to read. That's okay. I'm not going to make you read all the words. But I kind of pulled out line by line, and I started to add, like color coding and indentation. And so you're like, and there's letters and numbers in front of each line. It's the same stuff but arranged just a little differently, and it starts to say something. You see, like, some patterns. What if we boil each line down to just kind of, like, its its core meaning, just a phrase or a word? It looks like this. And so now you can really easily see that there's, like, an ABC at the beginning with corresponding bits at the end. Again, it's okay if you can't read it. I'll read it to you in a second. <laughs> um A, B, C at the beginning, A, B, C at the end, with some stuff in the middle. And the stuff in the middle sort of works in layers, like here, 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 something's in the middle. There's symmetry, like we said we'd run into with this whole Jewish composition thing going on. And so the point is, hey, there's something in the middle. Pay attention to what's in the middle. That's why they arranged things like that. That's why Jesus, when he told this parable, put something right in the middle so you'd pay attention to it. So what I said is in the middle here is restoration. We're going to dig into that a little bit more. But first, we need to know a little bit about Jewish villages and how they handle sheep. (laughs) Okay? So um, a flock of a hundred sheep is likely owned by an extended family, or maybe even like the village owns this many sheep. And so they go out to graze together in a group of shepherds, not just one dude. And so any sheep that's lost is viewed as a loss for all of them. The lost sheep is a community loss. Villagers would keep their sheep in a courtyard back at the village each night. So in the morning, shepherds who are going to go out, they get all the sheep, they get together, they open the gate, they go out to graze They're out all day or however long they do. And then at the end of the day, they bring all the sheep back home, put them in the courtyard. They're safe for night. And you get to sleep in your bed, have a meal, see your family, that whole thing. Okay? So that's kind of what would have been going on. So when we're out in the open country and the group of shepherds count and go, oh, man, there's a lost one here. There's only 99. One shepherd goes to find the lost one and the others take the rest of the sheep home. They return to the village. And as they get home, and you're waiting for the one guy, wondering if he's going to come back with the lost sheep or not, word starts to get around, right? Small village. So everyone else knew that there was a lost sheep, and there's a shepherd out looking. When he comes home, there's restoration for the sheep, you know, when we sort of spiritualize it. But there's restoration for the whole community here. Hey, the sheep that was lost is found. Let's have a party. We're happy. Everyone celebrates and celebrates together because of that shared ownership in the flock. So the parable, the message in this parable, and the other ones that we're going to talk about in a minute, hey, Jesus is saying a lost soul is a community loss. Someone far from God is a loss for all of us. He's saying the godly response when a lost one is found is joy. Joy that the lost sheep was found in the parable joy for us when someone far from God comes home. And he's sort of saying, hey, y'all Pharisees, you better get your act together. You're mad that I'm bringing home lost sheep. Um, But bringing the lost home is supposed to be a joy to us all. So join the party, guys. He's saying a little more, too. We'll get into that with the other two. Um, Next, he talks about a woman who, who loses a coin and finds it. And there's joy. She invites everyone over for a party because what was lost is found. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party. And then we get to sort of a huge exclamation point on what Jesus is saying in the parable of the prodigal son. It's long. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm going to kind of summarize what it is and we'll dig into it a bit. Sound good? Still Luke chapter 15. Let me get a drink. So you guys, in the parable that Jesus tells, in a Jewish village, a father has two sons. The younger son says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance. I'm out of here. He leaves the family. He is lost to the family, to the community, totally broken relationship. But when he comes home, the father extends gracious, costly love to his younger prodigal son he comes down out of the house and runs to meet him at the edge of the village. In doing this, the father literally humiliates himself. There's a bunch of cultural things going on there that we're not going to spend time digging into. But the father humiliates himself by running to meet the son at the edge of the village. He does it to restore his son to relationship with himself and the community as a whole. Again, there's a lot of cultural things going on behind that. In light of such love, the son repents. The father has found his son and restored him. And they throw a party. It's a happy ending. The second half of this parable, we learn that there's an older son too, who also has a broken relationship with his father. He follows all the rules. He didn't leave and go away. He lives in the home. He's taking care of the estate that he and his father own. But he thinks like a servant not like a son. And that's where his brokenness is found. He too is a lost soul. And the father extends a gracious, costly love to the older son as well. There's a party going on. The younger son's home, the village is gathered, and the older son's whining and complaining outside. And what does the father do? Again, he comes down out of the house to meet the older son where he's at. He humiliates himself by doing so. Fathers don't do this sort of thing. Their culture, but he does it at great expense to himself because he wants to restore this son to himself and community. Jesus ends this parable without a resolution, you guys. If I were to lay out the structure of this one, you would see a symmetry in the younger son's story. What's in the middle of the prodigal younger son's story is repentance, and it ends with restoration. The older son's story also has that symmetry. And right in the middle is not repentance, but complaining, grumbling. (laughs) And then it doesn't end. It's broken symmetry. It's like uh, when the geese fly, but their V's not equal. You know what I mean? The older son's story has a beginning, a middle, and that point of symmetry, a middle part coming back, and then a gaping hole. Remember, Jesus is telling these parables to the Pharisees who grumble and complain about how he eats with sinners and receives them. So he tells this parable with a huge cliffhanger at the end. It's like he's saying, hey, are you going to join the party or not? Scribes and Pharisees. Stop complaining about how I eat with sinners. I'm extending gracious, costly love to restore them. In fact, I'm willing to offer that same Love to you? Do you want to receive it? We don't know. Do they? Do they not? Luke leaves us hanging too without like extra commentary at the end. It's sort of like he wants us to ask ourselves the same question. If we'll receive the love of God. All right. Fast forward to today, 2023, right here in Kalamazoo. How do we sort of respond? Well, kind of like the older son, will I embrace mercy for all, even those I despise? He hated his younger brother for what he did, wasting the family's wealth, coming home, and then the father's gracious to him, and the older brother's just, he despises the whole thing. Will I have, uh, Will I embrace God's mercy for all people, even people that I despise that wrong me? The parables also point us... Um, point out to us, just like it does to the Pharisees, that all are lost and need to be found by the gracious, costly love of God. You know, Isaiah 53 says, 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, pointing to Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So like the one lost sheep, we've all gone astray. We've all gone astray, either like the younger brother or like the older brother. And we're encouraged to recognize our need for the good shepherd to save us and to celebrate with him when he saves others. Jesus, one with the father, came down out of the house to find and restore you. He came down out of the house to find and restore me. It was a costly gift. It cost him his very life on the cross, didn't it? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, one more passage to look at, you guys. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50 tell a poignant, amazing story. I'm going to read it to you. I don't have it on the slides, but I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll talk about it just a little bit. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house. He reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was there, brought an alabaster flask of perfume, and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, reading his mind, hearing his little grumble under his breath, I don't know, says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon, you know what he's getting into, he said, Say it, teacher. <laughs> Then Jesus tells a parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, Simon, which of them will love him the more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then Jesus turns to the woman, says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, I think this part might have been kind of strange, I entered your house, Simon, you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he says to the woman, Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Wow. It's a good one. Good pick, Bill. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I agree. <laughs> I read a couple of books um, preparing for last week and this week by Kenneth Bailey. When he talks about this passage, he says, it's a literary gem. And it's a it's one of these compilations. Remember I said there's different things going on, Jewish writings and oral traditions, The words of Jesus carried on by the apostles and given to Luke, you know, and and it's all packaged together. Jesus is using a parable. It's wrapped in in symmetry, um, within symmetry, actually. There's a lot going on here. Um, Bailey gets into it. I can tell you the titles of the books if you want to geek out deeper. But the point is there's a lot going on. There's symmetry within symmetry. What's at the center of the whole passage at that point of symmetry, right, where the big red arrow points, is the parable that Jesus tells. And then if you take just the section at the beginning about what the woman does for Jesus, that's symmetric, and the arrow points to her hair. So by looking at the structure of the text, we get the emphasis, the parable and the hair. Um, if we learn a few things about culture, hospitality, and even the way that women moved around in society in that day, in that culture, we can start to peel back some layers and see what's going on in the scene that plays out at Simon's house that day. So, here's the things we're going to look at <clears throat> hospitality. This scene is filled with tension, it is so tense and so awkward. Because of what did not happen, you guys. Right? So in first century Jewish culture in the Middle East, not even just Jewish culture, but in the Middle East in general, and even to this day, I think, there's a high value on honor. It's an honor culture. So when you have a guest to your home, you really honor your guest, no matter who they are. How much more so a visiting rabbi, right? So the expectation is Jesus comes to Simon's house. He's going to be greatly honored. And there's this like exchanging that's supposed to happen. Jesus is greatly honored by Simon. He honors Simon for hosting him. And and that's the way it's supposed to go. But like Jesus says, there's no kiss of greeting. That's normal. When you come to a guy's house, you exchange these kisses of greeting. And Simon didn't do it. There's no water to wash Jesus' feet and hands. Can you imagine walking around in sandals in a dry and dusty place that doesn't have pavement and sidewalks like we do? How dirty your feet get. So when you come into the house, it's normal to clean off your feet. And before you eat a meal, you clean off your hands. We do that too. We get that. But Jesus wasn't offered that greeting either. And there's no oil to anoint the head. So, you know, if Simon sort of forgot one thing, maybe we'd give him a pass. (laughs) But the fact that he skips all of this, it's actually a very pointed insult. And everyone in the room knew it. Jesus knew it. The woman knew it. She was witness to the humiliating treatment that Jesus was enduring at the hands of Simon that day. So who is this woman? Based on a bunch of scholarly stuff. (laughs) We believe she's a woman who was likely a prostitute who had heard the message of forgiveness that Jesus had shared before. She had received it, she'd been forgiven. And now she's coming with perfume, ready to find where Jesus is at and to offer her thanks for the re- forgiveness she's received. It's a really big deal because, in the case of a woman who's likely a prostitute, the religious leaders of her day. Um, would have told her that in her case, she can't be forgiven. Part of their normal process before Jesus of being forgiven was like this act of compensation. It was part of their repentance package. And so based on the way she had sinned, their message to her would have been, you are unforgivable. By the way, I'm not hanging out with you. You're unclean. <laughs> Get out of here. But Jesus offers forgiveness to the unforgivable. He rescues the outcast and restores them to the community. She had experienced this and came to thank him lavishly with perfume. But her plan takes a turn. It's really it, it's normal in this situation that Simon, his uh, Pharisee buddies, and Jesus would sit at the table. But other people from the village were, were sort of out around the outside of the room. Not at the table for the meal, but able to be there. So her plan takes a turn. She's here, you know, standing by a wall in a lowly place for sure, um, watching what's happening to Jesus. And she sees how rude Simon is to Jesus. And she begins to weep. The one who brought her what she thought she could not have is being treated so poorly. So she starts to weep over the public humiliation of her savior. She thinks, "Isn't there anything that can be done about this?" That's it. I've got something I can wash his feet with. I'll use my tears. So Jesus would have been reclined at a table, they didn't sit like we do. Um, he would have been sort of in a lying down posture with his his hands and his head. Um, right at the table with those around, and his feet sort of stuck out behind him. So she had access to his feet. She could wash them. That was sort of something she could do. She washes with her tears, she dries with her hair, she kisses his feet and anoints them with the perfume. Bailey says, with this dramatic act, she entered into Jesus' pain of rejection and public humiliation. She gets right into it with him. You see, in um, in their culture, women didn't, um, didn't wear their hair down. It was up and it was covered. And actually, um, that was a part of the wedding night for them, was that the bride would actually let down her hair and her husband would see it for the first time. There's like, in Bailey's book, he talks about like really pious Jewish women, you know, who are held up as like the standard of holiness or whatever. One woman's like, I don't even let down my hair in the house. Like, it's only for the the intimacy of the husband and wife relationship. So this thing about this woman letting down her hair in a Pharisee's house in public to dry Jesus' hair is really, really significant, isn't it? She's joining in the humiliation. She's humiliating herself and embarrassing herself. Um, And she's also doing something really intimate, pledging loyalty to Jesus. She puts herself out there, but she's compelled to do so by her love. Stop crying, you guys. (laughs) Look in this section and then they get me going. (laughs) Barely said you started it. You're right. It's, It's very, very poignant. It's very emotional. Okay, so the woman does this, embarrasses herself, humiliates herself for Jesus for, because of her love for him and what he's already given her, forgiveness of sins. Everyone expects Jesus to be embarrassed, to apologize for her, like, oh, I'm so sorry, you guys, uh, you know, or, ask, or to be offended and ask, Simon, get her out of here. The men need to talk, you know. Would you get her out of here? That's what is expected in their culture. But Jesus doesn't do that. He accepts her costly gift and in so doing puts himself out there for her. What an exchange of costly love and sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's a point of Jesus divinity built into this story as well, because you know who you give a thank offering to um, when you want to worship, when you're thankful to God, you go to the temple And you give an offering there at the temple. But Jesus, Jesus. the woman brings her thank offering to Jesus. Oh, that's significant. And he accepts it and he forgives sins. So, hey, this is God in the flesh, you guys. That's built into the story as well. Then we get to the parable. Two debtors are forgiven. One a large amount and one a small amount. Here's what Bailey says about this. Simon is being reminded that he has just acted in a rude and unjustifiable manner and that Jesus is not going to ignore the insult. Simon is also a sinner, right? Jesus is sort of setting up the comparison. Hey, someone's owed a lot, but has been forgiven. <coughs> this lady here washing my feet with her tears. And there's someone else who has a small debt who's also forgiven, it's you, Simon. <laughs> but Jesus appears to be saying he forgives Simon too. The smaller debt's forgiven in the parable. He's forgiving Simon while Simon's in the middle of humiliating him. It makes me think of what Jesus says on the cross in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus forgives people even while they're in the act sinning against him it's like jesus is saying can't you see simon if i refuse to eat with and associate with sinners i can't have this meal with you either but receive my forgiveness and let's build a relationship like i have with this woman the conclusion here is sad (laughs) You know, Jesus tells the parable. He sort of appeals to Simon. Then he says to the woman, reaffirming that her sins are forgiven. And Simon and the others at the meal just keep on criticizing. You know, they're mad that she's a sinner. and Why is Jesus letting her do this? And now they're mad that Jesus says he can forgive sins. Bailey says, criticizing Jesus is much easier than dealing with their failures to accept forgiveness and respond with love. Deny the message and attack the messenger is the order of the day. That's how they respond, which is so sad. Well, we can take away from this that lawbreakers and law keepers both need forgiveness. Just like the younger and the older son both need forgiveness in the prodigal story. And we can see that Jesus offers forgiveness freely at great cost to himself. It's true in how he put himself out there socially to be humiliated and embarrassed, but it's ultimately true at the cross. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. <coughs> Excuse me. And Hebrews says why he did it. He sa- it says he did it for the joy that was set before him. He did it for the woman at Simon's house. He went to the cross for her. He went to the cross for Simon. He went for me. He went for you. So have you received his forgiveness? And if so, has it motivated you to offer him a costly gift of thanks? David said in the Old Testament in second Samuel I won't offer God an offering that didn't cost me anything and so I think it's a challenge to us particularly as Americans to think about offering God more costly gifts you know it's sort of easy if you've been in the Christian community for a while to show up to church go with the flow of you know singing songs of worship and and it's an easy gift. It's it's sort of an inexpensive gift if you're already used to it. But I think there are more costly gifts we could give the Lord that he would really enjoy receiving from us. Um, you know, sometimes people talk about this woman at Simon's house and sort of over-spiritualize the perfume, turn it into this, like, spiritual thing, offer a, a perfume of song, you know, which... Has meaning. There's symbolism there. I don't mean to belittle that. You can do that The a future Sunday at New Day. It's okay. <laughs> um, but we also want to remember it cost her money. This is an expensive perfume, it was a valuable thing. And so we should invest <laughs> our money in worshiping the Lord as well. It's biblical. From Abel, the very first offering, to Abraham through the Old Testament. In the book of Acts, people sell their possessions and bring it to the apostles. They give monetarily. And the elders in the book of Revelation, do you know what they do? They put their crowns before the Lord as they worship at his throne. God's people respond to his costly love with things that cost them something, real world financially. And so when we give tithes a little bit regularly over a period of time, we're entering into that. When we give an offering, you know, the Lord stirs your heart in a unique situation to give above and beyond an offering. That's a costly gift. And he receives it as worship, just like he did from the woman. And it's a really special thing. There's another kind of costly gift, too, I think we should do, and I'll, I'll end with this in uh, and, and one verse, one set of verses. Um, we can offer a socially costly gift, right? The woman embarrassed herself. She humiliated herself. to to worship Jesus and to, to minister to him. And so we can choose not to let embarrassment or social fears hold us back, but live as salt and light in the world. Share the good news about Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you. Don't let fear hold you back. Jesus wasn't shy about this sort of thing. We sort of are in America or can tend to be, but Jesus was not shy about calling people who follow him to do costly stuff. An example is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. We'll end with this. Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, Merrily, would you mind singing a song for us to respond if you need to get your kids from children's ministry, you can do it. You can bring them in here. Um, and if you need to get going, you can. But let's, if not, let's stand. Let's take a minute to respond to the word of the Lord this morning and begin to give him, either receive his forgiveness, if you need to. And if you have, embrace that and offer him a costly gift of love in return. I asked Lee to sing a song We heard a long time ago that is like written right from this passage in Luke about the woman.
1: Yeah, so just close your eyes and picture yourself before the feet of Jesus offering him a costly gift. I bring to you a fragrant offering. I pour out my love. I offer up to you, Lord, this costly gift with absolute abandon. Now my love, I confess and may it be a pleasing fragrance I bring to you. O oh my Lord, I am so in need of your presence. I pour my vial of worship over you. I pour my vial of worship over you. I pour May it be a pleasing fragrance I bring to you, Oh my Lord. I am so in need of your presence that I bow before your great sacrifice your generous forgiveness whether we recognize the gift you've given us or we're still in the act of sin you offer that forgiveness we just want to be a people who respond with thankfulness and worship we love you God thank you for your word today help us to apply it to our lives this week And beyond. In Jesus name. Amen.